sock covering a microphone you got there you know what it looks like um like a condom i was gonna say like foreskin uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right um <laughs> anyway jenny how was your day it was good it was long it was very loud mm-hmm. um I was dealing with a bachelorette party at work today, and they said the N word out loud in the in a in a public place while singing a song, and it was very uncomfortable. But other than that, it was good. Just a cool, cool, normal time then. Jesus. Um. Yeah. It feels a little disingenuous to talk about how our days were because we already talked about that. I guess I, I was just kind of trying to like ease in. Yeah, well, that's nice. All right, well, but now well, we're talking. We live together. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of hard to like really, really just start a conversation. Anyway, Jenny, it's here's the thing: only one of us can drink beer at a time. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Cause... This is my turn right now. Okay, I'm, and I'm gonna talk for a while, and you can like sort out your burps, and then rude sorry i just i never burp at all wait can we tell people about how you shaved my head yesterday um i mean we can (laughs) if you want i have an undercut i asked kirby to you know just like touch it up a bit which normally uses the number three uh setting on the trimmer kirby forgot to put the trimmer thing on and now i'm bald on half my head half is kind of a lot and you're right, it is kind of a lot. <laughs> you did say shave my head, but I'm I'm sorry. Um it was it was wrong and I realized about halfway through that it was wrong. <laughs> but it'll be back really soon. It'll be the length you wanted it to in like a week and a half, maybe. You tried to hide it from me though. I didn't try to hide it from you. I was like, well, she's gonna notice that and what she chooses to do about it is up to her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is how this conversation went. I touched the back of my head, and I said, oh my god, am I bald? And you said, no, you still have a lot of hair. And I said, but am I bald there? And you said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I did, I did. Um, (laughs) We should introduce the show. Hi, uh, this is The Wedge. I'm Kirby, and... I'm Jenny. We co-produce the show together. Jenny's usually the host, and I'm usually behind the scenes cutting and pasting and slicing and dicing in the uh, digital audio workstation and removing horrifying mouth sounds yeah lots um and making really really gross loops of just like saliva noises but uh jenny what kind of show is this uh this is a show about anti-occupation jews by me an anti-occupation jew and co-produced by you not a jew but also anti-occupation yes yes true and it is and good at audio yeah well you know i may be a better mouthpiece for this topic yeah 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 also i'm to be totally fair like more involved in oh absolutely i i have the audio skills and you have the activism background and bent sure yeah yeah um anyway it's also it's pride this month right yes 
Yes. Um, and last episode, we talked a little bit about, well, I didn't talk. Jenny and Seth and Rachel briefly in our uh, birthright conversation, they talked about the term pinkwashing. Mm, yes. And also after I Googled pinkwashing to just make sure I hadn't said anything stupid. And what I realized that I hadn't known already is that the term pinkwashing and that picture, that image of the pink triangle comes out of, well, the pink triangle comes out of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where gay people were made to wear this pink triangle, the same as like Jewish people were made to wear the Jewish star, which leads me to wonder what all the Jewish queers were wearing. But um, the so the star or the the pink triangle mm -hmm. um, was largely for gay people as well as for trans folks, and it has been sort of flipped around, turned into a symbol of pride. And pinkwashing is about using queer pride to further largely nationalism. Mm -hmm. And then specifically in the context of, like, Zionism and Israel-Palestine. We talked about it last week. Um, I googled gay Israel today, and the first thing that comes up is the Israeli consulate's page called Gay Israel. Okay, awesome. Yeah, as Seth mentioned last week, like, he was advertised a lot. Like, Tel Aviv is the coolest, uh, coolest gayest city. Number one Israel. gay city in the Middle East, it said on gayisrael.com or whatever I was on earlier. So there's this big hubbub in D.C. right now about the uh, Dyke March. And there was this hubbub in Chicago oh, a couple of years ago. And actually what's interesting is I think I've come around to a different perspective on mm -hmm. it. Since the Chicago Dyke I remember Chicago. we talked about this a couple of years ago. What'd I say? Um, yeah, you were you were on the opposite side as you are now, I think. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, at that time, I just felt like, and I still feel like this, there aren't a lot of options for flags that show queer Jewish pride. And yeah. unfortunately, that, like flag with the star of david in the middle and that star is basically transplanted from the israeli flag mm -hmm. uh whether it's blue or white still definitely is referencing that israeli flag mm -hmm. you know and it's probably still the case that if you went online and googled like queer jewish flag that's all you're gonna get and that's yeah that sucks um mm -hmm. at the same time i think that we can decide to move beyond using Israel as a symbol for Jewishness and there are ways to use the Star of David or other Jewish symbols to like represent yourself. I've seen like like uh kippot that have the like little rainbow around the rim that's super cute. I've seen like flags that are all different colors, little stars of David I've seen all kinds of stuff. And the thing is, like, even I think a couple years ago when we were talking about, maybe we should talk about what the... I was going to say, like, maybe you should backfill a little bit and let the people know what happened with the march this weekend. Basically, there's... Uh, several years ago, there was a gay pride march, the Dyke March, in Chicago that had a... Basically... I don't remember what the exact stance of that march was, but it they were not allowing people to bring Israeli flags. Um, I believe it was, like, their stance was explicitly in support of Palestinians, but I'm not sure. Um, and that was interpreted by some people as anti-Semitic. 
and they're not allowing people to carry Israeli flags extended into uh, flags that are like gay pride flags with a rainbow uh, with a big star of David in the center that is, yeah, as I mentioned, basically could be transplanted from uh, the Israeli flags, same size, same shape, same font, everything. You could imagine very easily like an American flag with rainbow stripes. It's sort of the same. That's like... what I was going to say is I find that American flag with rainbow stripes really offensive. Oh, there's so many offensive American flags. And I don't find it offensive because I find the rainbow stripes offensive. I find oh, it offensive yeah, yeah. because I find... I just don't think that we should be, as people, globally seeking our liberation through nationalism. Mm -hmm. Like, we can see how that turned out in Israel. We can see how that's turning out um, in the United States in a lot of ways. I don't think that countries and nation states are the best way for people to be liberated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just say it doesn't, yeah. What is your... um... I want to tie that back to pinkwashing in a little bit, but before we get there, what is your, um, what do you feel like is the, like, proper venue for liberation if, like, the way that we organize, you know, along nation-state boundaries doesn't feel functional to you? What What is meaningful for you? Well, can I first talk about why I don't think that's functional? Because it's oh, a totally. big, heavy yeah, yeah. thing to say. Like, Absolutely. I, I don't I think guess... countries are good is huge. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, like... Yeah, yeah, please, please back up and do that. I'm, I'm kind of just like you're like countries are bad, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we talk about <laughs> for this real all the time. Um, but no, please, please walk, walk us there. Yeah, let's walk backwards because my mom listens to this and she's going to be absolutely flipping the lid if we don't explain. Um, which is good. I actually think that my mom's probably a good barometer for like, you know, average Joe Safina. Hi, Ellen. <laughs> um. So first of all, one of the things that I've come to realize over the past year, and it seems so stupid that it took me this long to realize it, is that historically, capitalist nation states are not the way the world has always been organized. And it seems so impossible to think about moving beyond the current structure that we live in because we're so steeped in it and our entire lives are capitalist and our entire lives are involved with this like country of america and at the same time having that historical perspective has allowed me to be like wait a minute yes yes in my experience of like trying to organize in ways that spread power evenly Mm -hmm. there needs to be structure Mm -hmm. because if there's not structure there's still power it's just unrecognized and it usually flows along social relationships Um, which can be good and can be bad, but you end up functionally with, like, you know, whoever the popular kids are in the group leading their group, which Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the best idea. So I think it's important to think about how we can create structures that decentralize power, especially because, and I think part of it is that we live in a very top-down structured system. Everything we do is hierarchical. And... You know, from our jobs to school to, I mean, our government, Mm -hmm. we've never had experience in something that's non-hierarchical. And so it's so easy for us to recreate those, oh, oh, this cat. Wow, he's so cute. Sorry, folks. We have a cat. It's going to happen. 
He's looking at shadows. On no, the, no, no, no. Uh, he's looking at a bug. He's going to catch it. Oh, uh, the fiercest man in the jungle. You go, boy. He hasn't left his apartment in like seven months. He's very fierce. I'm sure he doesn't know about the outside world. I mean, he looks at it sometimes through the window. Not through the door. No. Um, anyway, the thing I want, like, the thing I was trying to get to. Wait, can I, I finish what I was saying? Yeah, sure, sure. What was I saying? I, um, you were talking about, like, creating community that recognizes, like, that there is hierarchy in the outside world and, like, trying to actively um, work against that. And, like, re- recognizing that power exists and needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, it just resides, like, below the surface. Yeah, and I don't think that that's just for the sake of, like, distribution and egalitarianism. I think it's practical for us to spread power. Here's why. Okay. Okay, here's my example. Um, the guy who built the Eiffel Tower, he and another guy, and pardon my French, but I don't know either of their names. <laughs> it's a good one, right? It's it's one. Uh, I don't remember either of their names, but they were competing to build the tallest structure in the world. And at that time, um, basically, people were building structures straight up. And so the higher you get, the more weight is on the bottom of that structure. And so that structure needs to basically just use a really strong material. And you're at the mercy of finding the lightest, strongest material you can to build the tallest building, right? Sure. So the guy who built the Eiffel Tower... I feel like maybe his last name was Eiffel, but I could be wrong. No, it was Tower. <laughs> his first name was Eiffel. Pierre Tower. <laughs> um, he came up with this idea to use triangles and basically to have the base of the tower go out and out and out. And the farther out the base goes, the more spread out the pressure is on each of these rods. That's holding up the tower, right? So there's not that many at the top. And then there's a little more and a little more and a little more. And the way that he's used triangles to create this tower basically means that no matter where in the tower a support is, it's carrying the same amount of weight. And that's how he was able to build the tallest tower in the world. And I think that similarly, we need to build movements. We're going to get the farthest. If each person can carry the same amount of weight in different ways, um, but we need to believe and support one another to like, we need to believe in one another and we need to support one another to do the best we can to work towards the vision that we want Mm -hmm. to see. And I think we are going to get the farthest, not if we allow a couple of powerful leaders to like, you know do all of the decision-making and also carry all of the weight, Mm -hmm. but if we share that among ourselves, as long as we do have a collective vision, which is important. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that the the way that I've seen you organize in the past has really, really speaks to that, because you're very much a person when you're, like, you're organizing something, whether or not it's, like, even, like, uh, we used to do shows in our house in Pittsburgh together, um, and something that you brought there was, like, okay, so... When people come in, like, we have to, um, one time you had a puzzle out for people to do. Just like, hey, there's something, or, like, ask somebody to do a simple thing to help you out. Like, there's something really worthwhile in going, you're here and you're being part of this and, like, sharing the work is important to making it 
happen at all. Yeah, I think that you need to give... I, I So there's a couple things there. One, I think uh, in a social situation, a lot of people are more comfortable if they have a task to do. And I'm one of those people. Um, and I wanted to make sure that people felt welcome in our home uh, when they were coming into these shows. That they would feel good about coming back and they would feel good about maybe bringing a friend, right? Yeah, sure. And, you know, and I was thinking about all the times that I had felt unwelcome at a house show um, because I was just standing there and no one was talking to me. No one had greeted me. No one was saying anything to me. Everyone was just wrapped up and having a good time with their friends, but weren't interested in creating an environment where new people could come in and also thrive. Um, So I wanted to counter that. And then the other thing is, yeah, I think that so so much of the time we want direction and we want to do something to help, but we don't know how. Mm-hmm. And having someone, especially at first when you're getting involved in some sort of organizing and you feel like you don't have a grasp on the big picture, you don't want to be like this big plans person. And you probably shouldn't be because you don't have enough context. But coming in and having a concrete task that you can do that is meaningful it's really valuable and it means that like you know if I hand someone a piece of paper and a pen and I say listen can you just like get everyone's email address I don't have to go around and get everyone's email address I can put my attention somewhere else and that person and mm-hmm. the community is benefiting from this so yeah I think that that's important mm-hmm. and I think that the way you outside of like doing shows together which is you know a form of community building for sure but not on the same level as like building community towards activism, I feel like. Um, no, but I think that it's really similar. I think there's a lot of like latent organizing power. Oh, abs- in, I would say absolutely. so. There's background. There's a um, difference in how people understand activism and organizing, and activism tends to have a little bit more of a negative connotation, mm. uh, which I'm not. I'm not 100% sure that I understand, but if you keep calling me an activist, someone's going to think that I'm, like, an asshole, like, justice warrior. An idea guy. Oh, <laughs> oh, God, so not. I mean, you have lots of ideas, but you're not a person who just shows up and is like, well, my my brain is my contribution, you know? Oh, fuck that guy. As, as Kanye put it, you know, my presence is my present. Kiss my ass. <laughs> those guys um, yeah 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 what do you feel like is the intersection of that kind of community building in your experience and like the queer community a hundred percent overlap can you can 98 percent overlap yeah i was thinking about you know you've you've organized with if not now a fair bit and we talked in in the first episode you talked with matt um and he mentioned like seeing the if not now sign at the pride parade with the just like hey queer juice yeah jillian made that sign she yeah. was in the third episode um i mean i think not to say that the queer community is ideal but i think that queer theory brings a lot to the table when we're talking about collective liberation whether it's and i'm trying to think about ways to make this accessible language because it is something that i spend quite a bit of time thinking about in a academic way as well Well, so i am not a graduate student so yeah but you live with me and you hear all my bullshit i mean yeah 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 but Um, just say what you're gonna say and we can unpack it if we need to 
I think queer theory brings a lot to the table in terms of recognizing intersectionality, which is the ways that, like, your race and your sexuality and all of these other parts of your identity come together to form your experience in the world or more to inform your experience in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all of those things matter. Um, and your ability. I think that's a huge mm-hmm. thing as well. And I think the other thing is one of the people who has been really influential in my thought process around the value (coughs) excuse me the value of like very intentional inclusion is who is queer and Mm -hmm. i think that that might be part of it it's just like i think about them and i think about all of the wonderful things that they bring to the table in terms of really foregrounding um really foregrounding inclusion and being very thoughtful about how we make space for conversations about queerness, about... Could you tell us who... A member of If Not Now Pittsburgh who is really invested in building community that's inclusive in a lot of different ways and has really taught me about the value of slowing down mm-hmm. and making time to do these things when everything in the world feels so urgent and it's like, we have to get this done, we have to get that done all these things and that urgency can push us forward and it can push us to act in ways that don't always align with our values. And I think that when we take a step back and we're willing to slow down and take a look at the long picture instead of this immediate urgent moment, we become so much stronger. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I think is interesting about, um, I guess your and our like experience contacting with the queer community in those kinds of, like not exactly organized, but um, intentional communities. Something you've kind of brought to the table in our own lives has been like the idea just of treating your treating your friendships as relationships, and that they're like real. Um, you're smiling at me. Oh, I was just thinking about <laughs> shirt. Oh. It says fart. Friends are relationships too. Yeah, um, and the way that we were talking earlier about pinkwashing, the way that pinkwashing kind of wraps back around. I wanted to give a concrete example for. I mean, I'm saying all of these sort of, like, theoretical things about why inclusion is important. Okay, I, so give a, give us a concrete example of that before I, before I get there. I think that when we make an effort to include people, and not just, ha- like, get people to the table, which I would say is, like, quote-unquote diversity, um... But to include people in decision-making and conversation in power sharing, we become so much and their ideas and their experience can really inform and add depth and nuance and power to the movements that we are building. And I think one of the ways that I've seen that is that in If Not Now Pittsburgh, there has been relatively little um, attrition. For the most part, people who come to um, a training for If Not Now Pittsburgh stick around. They might not be totally, totally involved in every single thing, every step of the way. But they still come to things occasionally. They still feel involved. Um, and I find that to be so powerful. I mean, I think that it's such an investment in 
in power building to recognize the many, many strengths that people have and the many assets that all people bring to the table and to be intentional about using all of them and not just the ones that we traditionally would consider useful, which would be like, wealth, whiteness, straightness, Mm -hmm. access to traditional houses of power, etc. And the way that pinkwashing works is sort of to incorporate that... um, that method of community building that puts power at the level of people and at the level of relationships and kind of incorporate it into the like philosophical structure of like nationalism. I wouldn't say that. I would say that the way that pinkwashing works is actually more shallow than that. It's about saying gay rights, queer rights, are valued in this community in sort of like concrete ways and ways that are real like we value uh marriage equality we value yeah it doesn't you know, not matter to people that it does those things exist. It, right um but it's overemphasizing. Mm-hmm. okay here's an example let's talk about it in terms of american policy okay sure um so how would you say that American domestic policy is about queerness. Uh, in a word, bad. Tell me more. I mean, American domestic policy at the, you know, state, national, local, institutional, you know, whatever levels is, you know, largely like homophobic, transphobic, like whatever, um, but we have a, I guess the thing that I would think about is all of the people who felt like um, like the gay rights thing was solved when the Supreme Court had the marriage decision. Yeah. It was like, that's, we're good now. Everybody. Right. You know. So for like a concrete example, uh, gay people living or trans people living in the U.S. are far, far, far more likely to be killed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to be murdered. Mm-hmm. To commit suicide. Um, it's legal for you to lose your job in some places mm-hmm. for being trans. Uh, so It's legal in some places for um, someone to like murder you because they didn't realize you were trans. Really? Yeah, it's like a, like a gay panic defense. Um, that's i'm sorry i shouldn't snort it's just i mean you know sometimes you just gotta you gotta snort at the yeah and the masculinity I mean, of it all it's still something that we that is a big discussion and argument in the u.s and it's not remotely mainstream or mm-hmm. codified that gay people trans people should have rights right but wait okay go ahead but um, you will hear in foreign policy, a lot of times people talk about how gay people are treated in countries in the Middle East. Mm. It's using gay rights as a political tactic um, when it's not actually something that you like care about or are working on in meaningful ways here. The like the Trump administration launched a like global like decriminalizing homosexuality initiative while also like 
disallowing trans people from like serving in the military or like just like receiving medical care right. in general. That's pinkwashing. Yeah. Okay. It's basically using the popularity of this conversation around like gay people should have rights mm-hmm. as a tool to leverage power typically against to to leverage functionally like neo-colonial power mm-hmm. or neo-imperialist power. And that let's like transfer over to Israel. Yeah. Is something that Israel's guilty of is yes, Tel Aviv is a pretty good city to be in if you're gay. Yes. Uh, Israel has relatively good laws about um hell yeah hell yeah i hope you can hear that music that just drove by in the street because otherwise this is bad podcasting (laughs) Uh, i was just gonna wait and then start over this i know i know okay um yes compared to other countries in the middle east israel has relatively progressive legislation around uh gay rights and queer rights however you will also hear a lot of times uh, people advocating for uh, Israel say something like, well, what would happen to those gay people in Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. What would happen to gay people in Palestine? There's an image going around of like two Israeli soldiers, two presumably male Israeli soldiers holding hands, and it's like, this is gay love in Israel. And it's just... It fails to recognize a couple of things. One, it fails to recognize that uh, gay people exist everywhere, and if you go about killing a community, probably 9% of them are gay, <laughs> um, if not more. Uh, so if you are, like, committing war crimes, this is a gay rights problem. If you're killing people, this is a gay rights problem. It's also a feminist problem. Uh, it's a womanist problem. It's an ableist problem. Um, it's all kinds of problems. Yeah, as long as like solidarity is your concern, it's your problem in some sense. I mean, yeah, as long as if if gay rights are your concern, you shouldn't be just like bombing communities because there's probably gay people there. The truth is, I think it's pretty clear that they're using that as a tool to leverage political power. Mm-hmm. Not that there is necessarily exclusively a, like, deeply embedded belief in equality. Uh, 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 I can't burp. I can just make it sound that sounds vaguely like a bird. Oscar, Oscar. Are you okay? Little guy? Well, he's reading. He's reading. He's reading, and we're reading. Okay, so we talked a lot in the I like the to first... say the cat's reading when he's near books. So we talked a lot in the first half of the show about how, uh, or about, we talked a lot in the first half of the show about pinkwashing sort of in a theoretical context and kind of the ways it exists in opposition in some senses to the kind of community building that you feel is important or radical or necessary for collective liberation. Yeah, I mean, we didn't use that word, but I think that, oh, you know what? We never got around to my, like, vision of a, like, anarcho-future. It's okay. That's a lot. (laughs) 
I think that's a long way to walk for one podcast episode. All right. Well, we'll get there. But yeah. let, suffice it to say, Secret. I think that we would benefit. I think that all people would benefit from living in like egalitarian small groups where power is spread more or less evenly among the people. And we don't need these like top down nation states with like violent overlords. Whoops, folks. We got you. It's secretly an anarchist podcast. <laughs> All right, so in the second half of the show here, we're going to look at a um, at an article that is a very a very direct and very concrete example of how pinkwashing works in Give action. Give it to me, baby. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> ah. Oh. Physically hurt me with that. I used to have a, like, pirated CD of the Offspring songs that had, like, four different versions of Pretty Fly for a White Guy on it. <laughs> Is that the Offspring? Oh, yeah. Whoa. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Dexter Holland, PhD in biology. Fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, that is not what we're talking about here. You got to tune into our non-existent Patreon for the bonus episodes where we talk about uh, the Offspring and their academic achievements. So this article was published in the Forward, which Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about the Forward? Ugh. Oh God, the Forward. The Forward used to be a like. Okay, the Forward is the English wing of what used to be a like communist slash socialist Yiddish mag Yiddish magazine called I think the Forward. <laughs> um, that still exists and is published regularly. The Forward uh, basically seems to take. It's supposed to be, like, a leftist Jewish uh, media uh, outlet, but it seems to pretty much take articles from anyone who submits them and has been posting, like, a lot of BS trash lately that's, like, really questionable. The header on the website here is The Jewish Forward, News That Matters to American Jews. Jewish, fearless, since 1897. Was communist. And the headline... Used to be cool. The the, forward. And the headline of this opinion piece by Peter Fox that we're going to take a quick look at is, For me, being gay and Zionist are one and the same. Ugh! What? Why? No! Well, let's find out why. A quick look? Because I think we need to... A quick look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we need to not dip too deeply into this dark pool for sure. All right. So he starts off the article by talking about a parade in New York down Fifth Avenue called the Celebrate Israel Parade. And inside that, there's a bunch of LGBTQ groups from different organizations. And then jumping into the second paragraph here, he writes, Marching in the parade is a public display of Jewish pride. But for me, that feeling took on a deeper meaning. Like a Jewish pride flag, the march fused my two identities, proudly gay and proudly Jewish, into something new, something bigger than the sum of its parts. And Jenny, just jump in whenever oh, you feel mad. This is nice. You know what? This is like, um, this is uh, intersectionality. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're doing intersectionality. Let's keep going. Keep let's going. see how I'm they not do. Mad right. yet. Marching and dancing with rainbow flags among the Israeli flags gave me a unique feeling, that of being among thousands of people just like myself, while also feeling completely different. Ours was without question the most visible group at the parade, a strange phenomenon for a community that has historically been invisible. Um, okay. 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 So, this person is conflating Jews and the state of Israel, and that's a problem. Yes. 
I find that offensive. Let's move on. Okay. I mean, I find I just think it's like ridiculous that people think of Jews who are this like ethnic and like religious group as all sort of like diasporic members of this horribly violent nation state. On the rare occasion that LGBTQ people are visible, like at a gay pride parade, everyone blends together. But at the Celebrate Israel parade, the rainbow cluster is the one group that stands out. Oh, this is a Celebrate is this is an Israel pride parade. Well, no wonder. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. It's well, no, it's not a pride parade. It's a Celebrate Israel parade at which there is a large LGBTQ contingent. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I've heard of this before. Yeah, yeah. continue, continue. The rainbow cluster is the one group that stands out. Our very presence sent a, sent a powerful message. It wasn't always the case, though. It's only been since 2012 that the parade started allowing LGBTQ groups to join the march, and it hasn't been without controversy. In 2017, the anti-Zionist group Jewish Voice for Peace hid themselves within the LGBTQ wait, group. Wait, wait, wait. I want to <laughs> say, I remember this. The JVP members who did this are all queer. Friends of the show, JVP. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know it. <laughs> it's a one-sided friendship. Um, 